Good morning. Happy to be here with you to open up God's Word. Today we are going to be in Titus again, as we're working through the book of Titus over the summer. We're going to be in Titus 1, and we're looking today at verses 5 through 9. If you can, please follow along with me. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let's pray. Dear God, we come before you humbled, God. We come before you as simple vessels, God, and we ask that that you use us in your way, not in the way that we think we should be used or, or the way that we force ourselves to be used, but in your way, God. We ask that you use this time to open up our hearts, our minds, that we can come to a better understanding of who you are and how you have called us to live as your daughters and sons. I'm going to give you all the praise, all the glory, all the honor, for you are the only one worthy of it. Amen. Growing up, I lived within walking distance of my elementary school. So for the first few years of school, I would walk to school with my brother and friends from my neighborhood. And the school was surrounded by a big metal fence, and you had to walk through a gate. And immediately after that gate was a gated-in portion that was dedicated for everyone's bikes. So it was just a big square that had a bunch of bike racks in it with everyone's bike. And then after that gated section, you would go down one more path to all the classrooms and the buildings of the school. So every day, every morning and afternoon, you would take this walk, and you would get filtered in with with everybody else from the school. Um, So you had, you know, kindergartners walking with fifth graders, whatever it may be, everybody's filtered through this gate. And in those walks is when I met a kid named Chaz, And Chaz was the coolest. He was a fifth grader, and at the time, I was a first grader. And Chaz kind of wore these baggy clothes, and he had this swagger when he walked. He kind of walked from side to side. And then he always did the coolest thing that could ever be done. Everybody walked around the bike racks. Chaz jumped over them. Chaz was the coolest. And me being this little first grader, I was like, that's it. He figured it out. That is peak cool. I'm going to do everything that I have to do to follow his example. I'm going to try to wear my clothes like him. I'll try to walk like him. I'm going to imitate him the best I can. Why? Because Chaz was cool and I wanted to follow him. And so I did. I'm going to leave the story there for now. Just just put it down. Don't think about it. What's going on in our passage today? Right? We already looked at the beginning of Titus. We see this beautiful greeting that Paul gave to Titus. Right? But now Paul is, is giving Titus some instructions. 
right? right? Titus is now in charge of, of finding leaders for the church. And Paul gives him some, some qualifications and disqualifications, some, some do's and don'ts for the elders of the church. If you're familiar with, with other writings from Paul, it, this is kind of how he helped, right? He, he went around and he planted churches and then he wrote them, giving them guidance. And, and a lot of times this guidance comes in the form of this is what your leaders sh- should be doing. So this is nothing new and it has a lot of similarities to other writings from Paul. But it's important to know that, that Paul had this understanding that there were responsibilities that the leadership of the church had to do. And there was ways in which they were to do them. So Paul is telling Titus specifically, this is what I'm looking for when you go to find the leadership of the church. And for our purposes here today, I'm going to use probably the word leader more than elder. Even though elder and overseer are the words in our passage, I just want to use kind of the blanket term leader. Because in essence, that is what a good elder is, right? He's a good leader. And I do want to acknowledge the importance of the office of elder, especially in our church and our church government. That's how we structure our church. But I'm going to use the the word leader to encompass the whole idea of of elder or overseer, or some translations even say, or a bishop. And also, leader fits into the whole follow the leader motif that we're going to have playing out. So we have Paul writing to Titus, right? He's instructing him to to find the right people to lead this church in Crete. It's a common theme made throughout all of Paul's instructions is is you need to find leaders that are beyond reproach. What does that mean? Maybe you've heard it, but you don't know what it means. If you want to simply just just translate it, it, it's just find somebody who is free of guilt. Find somebody who's free of accusations or, or find somebody who's blameless. Now, that's a tall order and not easy to fit into. So Paul is looking for individuals who can lead, who are coming from a good place. They have a good standing. They're someone who's beyond reproach. And to find these individuals, Paul knows it's not easy, so he kind of gives out some qualifications. These are the things to look out for when you're trying to find these leaders. These leaders were supposed to be beyond reproach. And, and just making a point, they're supposed to be beyond reproach, not so that other people can be so infatuated with who they are, be like, oh, look how amazing he is. And it's certainly not to scare or intimidate others, say, I can't even approach them because they're so pure and perfect. No, the reason why they're supposed to be beyond reproach is that, and the reason why they had to have these strict qualifications to lead is because they're supposed to be the model the example for how to live your life, right? They need to pursue holiness in the eyes of God so that Christians can look at them and say, that is how I should live my life. One commentator says this, he says, and in light of what's happening in this passage, she says, whoever holds a position of Christian responsibility must simply be beyond reproach in order to serve as a true example to others. This example does two things. First, it holds the leaders accountable for their actions. They must hold true to the qualifications because they're supposed to be this example, this role model for the church. So if members of the church want to get a picture of how do I live my life, they just look to the leadership of the church. Second, it means that these qualifications, these these attributes that we're going to go over, it's not just for the leaders of the church. If they're examples, that means 
everybody else in the church should try to live up to these qualifications. You're not off the hook if you're not in leadership. So if you, you hear these, these words in this passage, they're just showing us a real practical use of, of how all Christians should live their life, not just the leadership. We should all strive to be beyond reproach, even though it's very hard. So first, what is it that the leaders of the church should not do? Or simply, what are the disqualifications of a leader? If you look back at verse 6 and 7, we can read that again. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. One more time going into beyond reproach. Just just one more thing. Nobody's perfect. We're all going to fail. So if you're not living beyond reproach now, that is okay. Because there is grace found in Christianity. And, and God can do amazing things in our lives to bring, him, bring us back to him. So hopefully God can work through us and bring us to a place where, where we can do these things and we can do them well. Where we can pay attention to the qualifications and, and not partake in the disqualifications. But how do you know if somebody is beyond reproach? How do we see into the heart of somebody? It's, it's almost impossible for us to do that. We're not God. We don't have that ability. So Paul does give out some practical things. These are the things you should look for in the disqualifications of a leader. First, we, we just pick up on the idea that, that the, husband, the, the leader should be a husband of one wife and his children are believers. Now, now, before you just say, oh, well, it's just a checklist, like all I have to do to be a leader is have a spouse and have kids and make them go to church. That's not what's going on here. Don't have that simple approach. And, and 1 Timothy, when talking about the same exact thing, in verse Timothy 3, it says, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? A commentator says that, that family life is the first area of proof of someone living beyond reproach. So don't view it as a checklist of, oh, I just need to get a spouse and I need to make sure my kids go to church. That's not what's going on here. And I know there are a lot of factors when it goes into everyone's home life, and, and sometimes home life is hard, and I get that. But the idea here is if, if someone can lead well at home, then that could be a good attribute for the church. If you can't, then you might be disqualified at this point. But don't hold so strictly to these words that you have to have a spouse and have to have kids, have to make them go to church, right? There, there's not a way to view that that's really accurate across the board because Christ was never married, never had kids, and nobody in their right mind would say he's a bad leader. So that's just one practical way of you can see how, how Paul is working out. Just practical ways. Hey, look for this, look for this, look for this. So what are specific disqualifications for a potential leader? Right? Following our verses, you can see if they're open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, or quite simply, if they're failing to remain faithful to their household, to their community, or to the church. It's a disqualification. In verse 7, we have a couple more practical examples for someone who may be disqualified to leave. Arrogance or quick-tempered, drunkard or violent, greedy for gain. They're pretty self-explanatory, but we can dive in just a little bit. 
See, does the potential leader handle themselves well, or are they arrogant? Do they think that they're better than anyone else? Are they conceited? Do they look down on others as less than? Or do they make you feel that way? Are they quick to anger? Do they not handle their anger well? Do they snap or, or do they unjustly use their anger in the heat of frustration? If you're leading people, then many times there's going to be a lot of stressors taking place. There's, there's a lot of pressure that builds up. So does the leader lash out and put others down? Do they hulk out, hurting those around them in their anger instead of leading and guiding others through difficult times? Moving on. Disqualification could be that you're a drunkard or violent. Violent kind of goes hand in hand with quick-tempered nature, but, but quickly I think violence is also heavily connected to being a drunkard. As someone who has grown up around a lot of alcoholics, I can kind of see how they're both heavily correlated. Not every time... But drunk and violence seem to go hand in hand. Maybe you can relate. Maybe that's something you have experienced in your life. And even if they're not connected, I'm sure you're aware of the dangers of being a drunkard. The lack of control. The lack of care. The lack of regard for others. These are not attributes fitting of a leader. And they're listed here as disqualifications of one. Finally, another practical Example of a disqualification is greedy for gain. This could mean that the leader is seeking to increase their monetary gain over the spiritual life of those that they are to lead. It could talk about people who are caught up in the world being so materialistic, right? That, that they think their status, their power comes from worldly riches and that their driving force is the world instead of God. It's a disqualification. I heard a story once about two well-known pastors. One had the other over to his house for dinner. And, and after dinner, the pastor took the other pastor, the visiting pastor, to his study. And he showed him this immense pen collection. And these pens were amazing. But it was thousands and thousands of dollars spent on pens. This made the other pastor start thinking. He, he kind of took a step back. He looked at this collection. Then, then he looked at the immense wealth that this man was using. <clears throat> and his realization was that if I had all of this, I would consider my ministry a loss. It's so easy to let money and comfort get into our head. And, and I'm not saying we can't have nice things. You can have nice things. But if you are greedy for your own gain at the cost of those you lead, that is the disqualification. So these are just a few examples, and just examples, and the list is not exhausted here. But this is a way for us to kind of look into an individual's heart. Where is the sin in it? How is that sin impacting the way they lead the church? Now, for those who are not leaders of the church, don't, don't jump to an easy outcome and be like, yeah, leaders do a better job. Because remember, the lead, what the leaders are supposed to do. They're supposed to be examples for the church and others. So everyone listening to these words in Titus should be able to reflect on their own lives and say, am I struggling with these things as well? <clears throat> now looking forward further into our passage, we have some good examples of what a good leader should be striving for. 
Verse 8 talks about the qualifications of a leader. Hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. The leader must be hospitable, a lover of good. What, what does that mean? One commentator put it simply this way. The, the leader must be hospitable, which implies a real devotion to the welfare of others and one who loves what is good. John Calvin simplifies it even further. What does hospitable mean? He says, one who is devoted to kindness. A leader should care for others, want what's best for others, care for others physically as well as emotionally and spiritually. I heard a story from a friend about an elder in their church, and it always stuck with me because it's a perfect example of how a leader should lead. A family at this church had someone pass away unexpectedly. The family was so caught off guard that they had a hard time when people came up and said, hey, what can I do for you? Let me do something. What can I do? They couldn't answer that question. So instead of asking these people, this, this elder just loaded up his truck with all of his lawn equipment. He went to the family's home and he took care of the yard work. He didn't ask. He just did it. Why? Because he knew they needed help. They were in shock. They were struggling. And he was so in tune with their needs that he just did. He anticipated. And he acted to care for them and their property. Leaders should be a lover of good and doing good. Bringing goodness to those they are leading and caring for. They should not use guilt, shame, and fear to control those under their leadership. They should model goodness and they should be able to control themselves. Another commentator looks at verse 8 and says, Verse 8 indicates that the overseer must be in reference to God holy, to others upright, and to themselves disciplined. Is the work that the leader is doing good and righteous work? Do others around them see them as doing good and righteous work? Are they upstanding individuals? Are they themselves in control of their lives? Are they able to be calm and collected and controlled and restrained when things aren't going well? These are some examples, some qualifications for the leaders of the church. But again, also they can be examples for us, anyone in the church. So when you hear all of these good qualities, where are you at? Are you able to pursue these qualifications, these attributes, these traits? And now if you heard all these things, the do's, the don'ts, the disqualifications, the qualifications, and you're starting to piece everything together, you might be like, well, what does this have to do with being a Christian? Couldn't a non-Christian do all of this without feeling like it was God that told them to do it? Simple response is yes. Anyone can try to live this way. This could be something that all human beings strive to achieve. And in a perfect world, the world would be in a much better place if we were able to do that. But we're not in a perfect world. For Christians, we have a bigger motivator than just saying, hey, I want to be a good person. We have something bigger than ourselves that we can commit to. And as leaders, we need to commit to that. So what is the commitment of a leader? Verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, 
so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The Christian leader holds firm to the word of God. The basis for all they do is rooted in what God has called them to do. They read God's word, they pray to God, they surround themselves with God's word. They know that knowledge comes from God first, so they wrap themselves in the knowledge of God. They listen to God's instructions, and they hang on every word coming from God. That's the foundation that non-Christians do not have. If you ask the question, why should I be a good person, living out these attributes found in Titus, we don't have to say, oh, it's just our duty. I just want to be a good person. We as Christians can go further. We can say that we are doing the will of God the Father in heaven, the, the maker of all things seen and unseen, the one who knew us before the creation of the world and knew what we were going to do, the one who calls us to him and leads us through his word and by his spirit. It's not about what we can do. It's about what God can do through us as Christians. How much stronger is the commitment then when you look at it that way rather than just say, I'm just going to be a good person? The leader of the church should lead because they themselves are being led. Led by who? Who has loved the church more than Christ? Who has done more for the life of the church than Christ? Who has perfectly led by example? One who perfectly lived a life beyond reproach one who is devoted to kindness. Who is the leader that all other leaders should follow and learn from? It's Christ. And how do we learn about Christ? By holding firm to the trustworthy word of God. And what comes from this commitment? What comes when you make the foundation of truth God and God above all other understanding and truth? Well, you're able to stand up for it. You're able to, to teach, to give instruction. You're able to rebuke and fight for God's word. You're able to help lead and guide others even when they're contradicting God's word and God's truth. But with great power comes great responsibility. This does not give you free reign to rebuke, to argue, and to debate, debate with others. It's important to know that verse 9 follows 6, 7, and 8. So when leading others, when instructing others, even when rebuking others who are teaching contradicting doctrines, how are you doing that? Are you doing it in a disciplined, upright, and holy manner? Are you coming from a place of love, mercy, and compassion and understanding? Are you able to do so without being arrogant or violent or quick-tempered? Are you able to do so beyond reproach? I think oftentimes we as Christians, we think we're doing well. And then maybe the more we think about it, maybe we aren't. We see many people in the Christian spheres leading out of fear and shame. How many times have you seen Christians out protesting with signs that says, God hates dot, dot, dot. You can fill in the blank. How many times have you been appalled by the lack of love and compassion from Christians when you look at social media? Is that how we're going to win others to Christ? Out of fear, out of shame, out of intimidation? Is that how Christ led? 
This brings us to Chaz. I started following Chaz's example. I kind of wore my clothes a little baggy. I started walking with, with the swagger. I also started to jump over the bike racks while I tried. The very first time I tried, I got to the rack, grabbed a hold, threw myself over the top, thought to myself, I'm doing it, I'm cool. Then my foot hit the top of the rack. I started to fall forward. It was at that point I started to question everything I knew about Chaz. Was he that cool? Was he the guy I should be following? Before I came to the conclusion, I fell face first down on the shell and rock that covered the bottom of the bike rack area. After getting up, brushing myself off, just minor scrapes and bruises, my friends and brother, they, they asked me, what, what am I doing? What are you doing? I'm trying to be cool like Chaz. To which my friend immediately said, well, Chaz waddles like a duck. Maybe that was a harsh truth that I needed to hear, combined with the pain I was in because of Chaz. But I quickly realized, hey, maybe Chaz wasn't as cool as I thought he was. Maybe he wasn't walking with this swagger. Maybe I shouldn't follow him this blindly. On a more serious note, I I think we can learn the same lesson when it comes to who we follow. We read a warning earlier in the service from Acts 20. It said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, we will arise men speaking twisted things. This is exactly why qualifications and disqualifications are so important when it comes to those leading us. Sometimes, oftentimes, the wrong people can be in leadership. They can lead us astray. So in those times, we need to hold each other accountable. We need to find these good attributes laid out to us in the truth of Scripture above all things. We need to find, those, we need to find and follow those who hold true to the foundation built on God's Word. Because I'll tell you that these people, these are the good leaders. They're the ones striving to live beyond reproach. They're the ones who truly understand the gospel. They're the ones who truly know that the ultimate leader is not themselves. It's not the most powerful man on earth. The true leader of all is found in Christ Jesus. He's the model. He's the true example. Man will fail. We're, We're caught in this battle of sin. A good leader knows that. They are aware of that. They're aware of their own failings, so they humbly and continually run back to the cross. They are the ones who lead with humility. They lead by showing others Christ. They're the ones that lead out of love and not fear or intimidation. They're the ones living a life dedicated to following Christ above all else. And they're the ones that lead those around them to do the same exact thing. So church, who will you follow? Let's pray. Dear God, we come before you humbled and broken. We are sinners in need of saving God. So we ask that that we feel your mercy and your grace, God. And then we ask that you work in us, you move us, you draw us to act You make it able that that we are able to lead by example and that example being set forth by Christ. 
Draw us to you so that we can follow you above all else. I want to give you the praise, all the glory, all the honor for you, the only one worthy of it. Amen. Now, church, we come to a time of confession where we confess together our sins and, and our desperate need of God to save us. Our confession this week says this. Most holy and gracious Father, because you have forgiven us and declared us to be righteous in Christ, we freely own our brokenness and confess our sins. Forgive us for misusing our time, talents, and treasure. Have mercy on us for indulging anger, irritation, and resentment. We are quicker to judge than to listen, more prone to hoard than to share, and more likely to complain than to pray. We ask that you would change us and we humbly offer our prayer in Jesus' great and gracious name. Amen. If you could take a moment to silently confess your sins to our God. Lord God, you hear us, and we ask that you move in us and you lead us. Amen. Hear these words as an assurance. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Let's continue to worship together.